We're so glad that you're listening to the Branches Podcast. If you're in the Houston area, we'd love to see you in person at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. For more information, go to brancheshtx.org. We hope this message helps you draw closer to God and that you hear the good news that you belong. Thanks for listening. enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies... Love, because love is contagious. Peace is contagious. If you want to find peace, sometimes you have to go to war within yourself or go to war with systems and, and the status quo to see for those that cannot see for themselves. And before we find that, we yield to the biggest revolutionary of all time, which is the Most High. Everybody from the fatherless, the widows, the broken, the babies, the elders. You want a revolution, be the revolution. Good morning. I am so glad to be with you all this morning. I'm Katie Montgomery Mears. For those of you that I haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, I'm one of the pastors here at St. Luke's, and so it's my privilege to get to be a part of Branches every now and then as well. Uh, Colin is enjoying his third week of uh, being with baby Roscoe. So you all know that he and Landon's precious baby was born uh, up to 10 pounds already, healthy, growing, doing all of the right and awesome things, and he'll be back next week. But it's just such a privilege that I get to be here with you all this week. Um, So before I get started, I want to ask you all, there's going to be a QR code on the screen, um, and I want to ask you all to just sign in that way. You can take a picture of it with your phone, um, and a form will pop up, and you can just register your attendance in that way. It's super helpful, even though it feels like housekeeping, because if you're here regularly, we know how to help you take your next step, get more involved, meet you where you are. If you miss a few weeks, we know that we can reach out and um, check on you and see how you're doing. So thanks for signing in and letting us know that you are here right now. Let me pray for us. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, For those of you that do know me well, you know that I am very passionate. I have a lot of passions, and one of the passions that I have is about LSU football. I love LSU football. Um, Until I was like 25, I had not missed an LSU football home game, guys, and I didn't even live. From the time I was 18 on, I did not even live in Baton Rouge, but I just went back seven times a year for football games. I feel strongly about it. Uh, So last weekend, LSU played a day game on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and so we actually took our five-year-old, Whitney and I took our five-year-old daughter, Mary Holland, to the football game, Uh, but then came back immediately afterwards uh, because I was preaching all the sanctuary services, and my husband was like, are we really going to go to a football game all day with our rowdy child and then get in the car and drive back to Houston just, you know, so you can be back there the next morning? And I was like, absolutely we are. Um, Of course. I feel so strongly about it. So you would think uh, growing up in this family that, like, sort of worships at the altar of um, college football, LSU football, Louisiana football, we might have loved the Saints as well. Um, That we did not. That was a a hard pass in the 80s and 90s. The Mike Ditka era didn't do much for us. Um, The Saints were, they struggled, man. Like for, uh, they had more losing seasons than winning seasons by a long shot. Uh, At some point, it got so bad in the 80s that uh, they actually became what was known as the Aints. And people started wearing these paper bags over their head like the Saints ain't gonna ever win, right? And so 
say I called them the Saints, they said we're Aints fans. They were sort of a hard team to love. Uh, it kind of got to the point in Louisiana, in South Louisiana, where if you might have in a situation said something like, oh, that'll happen when pigs fly, or that'll happen when hell freezes over, right? Like that type of phrase. People would say, well, that'll happen when the Saints win the Super Bowl. Like it was just so sure to never be a thing that would happen. So you can imagine everyone's surprised when after almost 50 years of losing seasons, the Saints in 2010 went to the Super Bowl. It was a total shock to everyone's system. Uh, I remember reading this story in the New York Times uh, about, uh, at that time, about a woman who had gone to the Super Bowl. So they were playing that game in Miami, and uh, they interviewed this woman who was there because her boss sent her. He paid for her tickets, he paid for her travel, he paid for her hotels, everything, because they had this running joke for like 20 years. You know, he would ask her to do something and she'd say, oh, well, if you send me the Super if the Saints ever make it the Super Bowl, you know, you send me. And he'd be like, okay, that's fine. You know, and at some point he was just making this promise to her that he would send her if the Saints ever made it to the Super Bowl. He thought he was very near retirement, right, when they interviewed him for this article. So he actually said he thought he had gotten off scot-free. Like he was like, there's no way this is ever going to come to fruition. And then, of course, they end up there. He thought it was a dead end, and it was not a dead end. Something new came about. And so that's where we find Zachariah and Elizabeth in our text for today. Uh, they are at this place where it's sort of like when pigs fly. Uh, it's a total dead end. They are older. They are not. Uh, they don't have a child. They don't have any hope of getting pregnant. And they're thinking, this could never happen to us. It will only happen if something crazy like the Saints winning the Super Bowl happens, right? So... Hear these words from Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abihah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all of the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as a priest before God during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. So uh, it, it, all of the priests were divided into like 24 different kind of groups of people. Uh, and each one, each group had a two-week time during the year when they got to go and offer incense in the temple. And so it was a big deal for it to be like your turn to offer incense as a priesthood, as a group of priests. But then there'd be a ton of priests in that and there were only really three jobs for offering incense. So they would have to cast lots to figure out who actually got to do the offering. So that's what it's saying here is that at Zechariah's section's turn, and he had cast the lot and got to go into the sanctuary. So at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of people was praying outside. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." 
Zachariah said to the angel, how can I know this will happen? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. Notice how he describes her, not as an old woman, just getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and bring this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day that these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering about his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he returned home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me in this time, when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Elizabeth and Zechariah are two people who really had everything going for them or should have had everything going for them, right? Zechariah is a priest, which was a a really meaningful and elevated and uh, set apart thing for people at the time. But not only that, he was married to Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the uh, brother of Moses, and he was the very first high priest. So Elizabeth um, brings something extra sort of to their household, that it's a priest married to a descendant of a priest. It says that they lived blamelessly. Uh, that doesn't mean they never did anything wrong. This, these are the same words used to describe like Noah and Moses as well. It means they lived an upright life. They lived according to the law code. They, uh, they lived in a way that could be looked on by God uh, as a really favorable way of living. But all was not actually well for them, even though it should have been because they didn't have a child. And they had longed for one and they wanted one. And while for us that is a a heartbreaking situation, sad, brings turmoil, for people in ancient days, not having a child was a true tragedy of economic and social nature. Uh, Economically, it's a tragedy because it would be, a child is supposed to take care of you in your old age. That was how the system worked, right? And so if you are um, without child, then it's like us saying, I have no life insurance or savings. Like I have no plan for the future. I have no idea what's going to happen when we're old. No one will take care of us and we will end up probably on the streets. And socially, it's a big deal because children were thought to be um, sort of a reward from God. It was seen as like, if children were a blessing from God, then if you didn't have children, it was seen as a punishment. It doesn't say this in the Bible, but this is what ancient Israelites believed, which is if you were barren, then you had done something wrong. You had sinned, you had caused this. So we know because the scripture tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth live upright lives. From the outside, it doesn't look like that. Everyone around them would have thought, in fact, this is why Elizabeth at the end of the text says, when she got pregnant, the Lord looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace that I have endured among my people. Because until she got pregnant, she had seen herself and other people had seen her as disgraceful. But through this unlikely situation, through this holy surprise of a pregnancy that really shouldn't have happened because as Zachariah said, he was old and his wife was getting on in years, the story of God continues. 
the needle moves forward on that story. Zechariah and Elizabeth paved the way for the revolution that God was going to bring about, the revolution of Jesus. And it's not because of anything that they particularly did. It's actually the work that God did through them. Through Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then on through the centuries, through many of us, God continues to pave a way to bring about that revolution. I want to stop for a minute and talk about this. Like, what does it mean that there will be a revolution of Jesus? A minute ago, we watched this bumper uh, with a number of images and videos and sort of evocative ideas of what a revolution can look like. These are the images that come into our head when we think about that. And they take the form of protest and of marches and um, sit-ins. And these are things that have moved the needle forward on a new system. That's what a revolution ultimately is, casting out the old system to bring in something new and better. And that is what so much of this has done. It has moved us forward as humanity because we have been able to cast aside old systems that have been oppressive, that have, um, that have hurt people and moved the needle forward. But here's the truth about it. All of our work as humans is meaningful and it's good and God uses it. And ultimately a revolution will only come through Jesus. Like we will all do good and meaningful work and God will call us to it and we are meant to be a part of it. But God is the one that ushers in a revolution. And that is what happens through the birth of Jesus Christ. This birth that we are waiting on now that we have entered into Advent. And so when you get this idea in your head, a picture of what it means to be a part of a revolution of Jesus, just remember it is the work that God is doing doing to upend the system. And we get tiny little human incomplete pictures of it through the work that we do, through marches and protests and all these other things, but that's incomplete because it will come to fullness through Jesus Christ. We want a new system here and now because like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we are at a dead end so often. We feel like things, the pause button has been pushed that we don't know where to go next. We don't know how to usher in something new. But here is the good news, is that even when it feels like there is a dead end for us, God is working behind the scenes, making a, a way. I listened to Carrie and the band sing earlier, um, all of us sing uh, that if I know my father, I know he has good plans. And that is the work that God is doing behind the scenes. The problem is we make it messy on our end of things, right? And we can't see that God can make a way in the wilderness, can carve out a path but that is what's coming. There's this, this beautiful Advent hymn that's called A Canticle of the Turning, and it paints a picture of how God takes what seems to be a dead end and turns it into something different. And I want you to hear these words as I read them. Though I am small, my God, my all, you work great things in me. You will show your might. You will put the strong to flight for the world is about to turn. That's what a revolution is, a turning. The hungry poor shall weep no more for the food they can never earn. There are tables spread, every mouth be fed, for the world is about to turn. Those are holy surprises, right? This idea that there will be hungry people that will be fed, that tables will be set in front of them with so much that they can't even get their fill. It's something, it's, it is the type of holy surprise that makes us think, yeah, right. That's, that's a nice thing to hope for. That's a nice thing to think about, but that's not actually ever going to happen. But that is what God says through John the Baptist about Jesus. Zechariah and Elizabeth's son is the one that goes and proclaims, yes, that the 
paths shall be leveled and made straight because Jesus is coming. And all these things that you say, yeah, right to, these are actually things that will happen. Part of our proclamation as Christians, as Christ followers, as people that believe in Jesus, um, our proclamation should cause everyone around us to go, yeah, right. Like we should say things that are the truth, that are what we believe Jesus will do, but that are so absurd that it causes everyone around us to say, yeah, right. Because if we don't, we're not actually proclaiming the good news. We're proclaiming some maybe idealized version of what exists now in the world. Like if we just have half hope, if we're like one day, a lot more people will be fed, right? That's what a lot of us maybe think that. One day, less people will be homeless. No, not one day, every mouth shall be fed. Everyone should have a safe place to sleep at night. All of that, the things that we might say, yeah, right to, those are the things that declare that a revolution is coming. And these are the things that we believe. Zechariah was in the temple praying when he was surprised by the angel. And the angel says, look to, um, to him, he says, your prayer will be answered. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will bear a son. And Zechariah is so surprised. I wonder how many of us came here today, came into worship, into this holy place, really expecting to meet God. Because it seems to me that Zechariah did not go into that place to um, burn the incense in there, to lift up prayers, really expecting that his prayers would be answered. We come here, we come here out of a perfunctory nature maybe. We come here because somebody invited us. We come here because we want to have the emotional experience of worship. But I don't know that we always really come here because we are truly expecting God to do something. How many of us today believe that God is going to answer our prayers? How many of us expect that to come about? I am so glad to see those hands raised. <laughs> but I think what's true for a lot of us is that we are on pause on a lot of this. It's hard for us to believe that that's what's gonna happen. We believe, of course, with God that all things are possible, but we sometimes think those things are possible for other people, right? God answers other people's prayers. God doesn't always answer our prayers. But God is faithful. The name Zechariah means God has remembered. God remembered Zechariah and Elizabeth, old couple having an, um, a baby at a crazy age. They're reminiscent of this old family of the Israelites that had waited not just for one lifetime, but for hundreds of years for a Messiah. And God remembered that old family of the Israelites. But God remembers you too. It's not just Zachariah and Elizabeth. It's not just the Israelites. It's every single one of us thousands of years later that God remembers as well. Maybe you are barren physically as well, just like Elizabeth. And maybe that's something you're struggling with and you don't think it's ever gonna come or you're barren physically in another way. Your bank account is barren. Your job prospects are barren and you don't know when there's gonna be a turn. Maybe you're barren spiritually. Maybe it took every single ounce of willpower that you had this morning to come to church again to try to be among people who proclaim something that you just can't, figure out how to get on board with anymore because you're just feeling so spiritually barren. Or maybe you're emotionally barren because you're beat down and you don't know when your relationship is gonna change or when your circumstances are going to change. But I want you to know that God is a God of hope. 
God is a God of possibilities, of holy surprises, a God of turning. In the meantime, there's waiting. We sang this morning that we wait in the stillness. We wait with faith. This isn't waiting like grocery store checkout line waiting, right? This isn't waiting at a traffic light waiting. This is an active waiting, a true waiting that has hope in the God who keeps promises. And the question before us is, so how do we wait? What do we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth about how we wait? And I'll tell you, the biggest lesson that we can see comes from their mistake. Zechariah's mistake is not to be hopeful in his waiting, it's to be cynical. His response to God is a, yeah, right, how could that happen? Not a, I will continue to hope for this. And so the way that we wait is with hope. I really empathize with this um, because uh, for a number of years, Whitney and I struggled with infertility and it was so hard to be hopeful in that time. Uh, we tried to get pregnant for so long and we just, we couldn't and we finally did and we miscarried and it was so hard for me to hold hope. And so what I decided to do as a form of self-preservation was to not hope. I just thought it might be um, better for us, both of us, if we guarded our hope, uh, guarded our hearts by not hoping. And so what we did was we just decided that we weren't going to be hopeful about anything that happened. And then I got pregnant again and we weren't hopeful about it. And then I miscarried and it turns out it did not hurt less because that I had hoped less, right? Like my calculation, my math about how the was going to work for me uh, didn't actually work out. I realized that all my pre-grieving or lack of hoping didn't save me from any grief that was going to come later. And so we made a decision at some point that if we ever got pregnant again, we would be hopeful. We would lean into hope and it would be the thing that, um, that we just clung to. And so we did. We got pregnant again and we were hopeful and we celebrated and we thought it was going to be awesome and I miscarried again. And you know what? The hope that I had had for those weeks is actually what sustained me enough to give me the energy to try again, to give me the willpower to continue to try to do this. Not, it, it, the hope didn't crush me. The hope was what strengthened me. That is the lesson for us in all of the ways in which we wait in hope is that the hope is what gives us more strength and more joy so that we can continue on when we know out there that God is working something new and good for us, we can keep going. But if we are the type of people who are going to wait without hope and we look out there and we're like, I don't hope for anything. I don't know that anything's going to happen. It's going to be really hard to keep sustaining ourselves, to keep going in this. The world keeps disappointing us. Like that is the way of the world. That is, that is what happens when we live in this brokenness is that it continues to disappoint us. Things continue to come crashing down on us. It continues to seem like we are at a dead end and things might not get better. But when we wait with hope, what we're doing is waiting with faithfulness. Even though Zachariah and Elizabeth were surely frustrated, there is no way that they were not frustrated after a lifetime of this prayer. Look at what he was doing. He was lighting incense in the temple. He was waiting with faithfulness. He hadn't abandoned his God. He hadn't abandoned his faith. He hadn't abandoned going and making these prayers. He might not have believed in that moment that they were really gonna come true, but the leading edge in his life was that hope and that faithfulness that kept him in the temple going. 
<laughs> there's a historian, there's a professor at University of Washington, uh, a professor of history, wrote a book called The First Thanksgiving, and it's about exactly what it sounds like, the first Thanksgiving um, of all of the pilgrims. But he tells this really interesting story in it about how he and his wife, uh, they lived near this public bus stop, and it went right to the school. And so that was how we got to the University of Washington every day, is that he would go and catch that bus. And one day he is uh, late, and he's running at a dead sprint, and he jumps on the bus, and he sits down, he puts his stuff down, and he kind of exhales. And like halfway through a stop, he looks around, and he's like, I don't know any of these people. It's so weird, because normally it's all of my students and like my neighbors, and he just kind of keeps, you know, reading his book. And then they make these stops, and other people get on, and he's like, I don't know any of those people. And then he's like, this is such a new way to go to the school. And he's looking out the window, and he's thinking like, huh, I wonder why the driver must be a new driver. I, I don't recognize that driver. He's taking a different route to the school. And it's not until he's like three miles past the University of Washington that he stops and realizes, oh, I think I'm on the wrong bus, right? I think I caught the wrong bus. And his reflection on this, which was so compelling to me, was at no point did he ever blame himself, right? Until he had gotten way past his destination. He had all these chances to look around and be like, huh, I wonder if I made a mistake. I wonder if this was me. I wonder if I should rectify this at some point. But he just kept thinking it had to be someone else. It had to be the bus driver. It had to be a new route, something like that. I think when we are in this place where we feel like we're at a dead end, when we have this barrenness, whatever that looks like in our lives, it's really easy for us to think that God is driving the wrong route, right? That God has put us on a bus that is on the wrong route and God is going on some weird way and bringing some new people into this and God has made all these mistakes in getting our life into this dead end. And we never stop to think about the fact that God might be driving the right route and we've just gotten on the wrong bus. And the bus that we get on is one of surety and of needing to know how things are going to work out and of having them work out right now and of forcing them to work out by bringing them about ourselves. How often have we done that in our waiting, in our waiting for a good revolution of Jesus for us to be like, I wonder if God just needs my help in this, right? And I'm going to just start walking a different path and see if this works. And God's like, no, I'm still driving the right bus. You know, and it's, it's a, you may not know how it goes because the timeline's different and I work behind the scenes, but I have good plans for you. And so you don't need to go drive your own bus. Just get on my bus and I'm going to take you. And it might take a little bit longer. It might not work out the exact way you want it to go, but the world is going to turn. Things are going to change. I will bring about the fulfillment of your hope. I'll bring about the fulfillment of hope for the world. I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes as we close because there's one more verse that I want you to hear from the canticle of the turning and just let this be a prayer um, over you as you hear this. This is a promise from God. Our spirits sing of the wondrous things that God brings to the ones who wait. God fixed your sight on your servant's plight and in my weakness, God, you did not spurn. For the world is about to turn. God, it is hard for us to wait with hope and with faithfulness when we feel like we are at these dead ends, when we feel barren, when we just can't see what's going to come next. But we know that you are bringing about something new. We know, God, that you are going to crash down on all of these things here 
that are painful, that we have aches, and you're gonna bring in this babe, Jesus, who will be our savior, our redeemer, who will change the world, who will turn it, who will change each one of us. And so God, we wait in this season, in our lives, we wait with hope and with faithfulness, trusting that there is so much goodness ahead for us. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.